Let me bounce this off you. You tell me if you find this to be true or not. It might be just me. But here's what I have found. Sometimes when you start to draw near to God, things get harder before they get easier. Has anybody else ever noticed that? Once you... Once you start to heed the voice of God, once you start to listen to God and you start to nudge toward God, man, barriers come up and challenges come up and difficulties come up. And and, and when God is drawing you closer to him in some way for some reason, a lot of times things get tougher before they get easier. When I was 14, uh, I didn't know the Lord and and I started uh, attending this youth group with uh, some friends and it was not like anything I had ever experienced at church. I had been to Sunday school as a little kid, and, you know, my mom, she stuck us on the bus. You guys remember Sunday school buses, some of you? That my mom stuck my brother and me on the bus, and who could blame her? I would have too. And she put us on the bus. She, she got us all dressed up in a little stupid-looking tie and made our hair look stupid, and we hated it, and off we went to church on the bus. And that was my experience of church until I was 14, and a friend invited me to come to this youth group at a church, and I thought, well, I'll check it out. So I went, and I was just blown away by what I experienced. First of all, it was all people my age. Secondly, um, they had this incredible live band like we have here on Sunday mornings. Um, Everybody was friendly. Everybody reached out to me, and there was a dude up there preaching, but he wasn't boring. And I was like, wow, I never heard anything like this. And I was starting to get interested. And the next week I came back. And the next week I came back. I started bringing my brother and a, and a close friend. And the three of us started coming together. All of us teenagers coming to this youth group. None of us knew God. We had, we had heard about God. We, we had been introduced to God. We had been in church as little kids. But none of us had a relationship with Christ. And the Lord was just beginning to work in our lives and beginning to draw us. Now, if we're going to be completely honest, honest, it was mostly the girls that had us coming back. Man, that youth group was filled with girls, and we thought, this is the greatest place on earth. And so um, when we heard about a camp that was coming up, we're going away for a weekend up to Big Bear. What could be better? This is going to be a blast. Girls are coming, right? So we decided we're going to this camp. What we didn't realize is that in this big youth group, there was a lot of kids like us who didn't know Jesus, and kids were inviting their friends all the time. But there was another core group of kids who, who really loved God and who were really on fire for Christ and who really wanted to grow spiritually. And this camp was just for them. They called it core camp. It was for the core kids in the whole youth ministry. And we were not expected to sign up, but we signed up anyway. And we went to this camp. And, and um, we were being drawn, but we didn't know it yet. Now, for this camp, we all, um, uh, what do you call it when you drive a bunch of cars in a row? Caravan, thank you. Uh, we all caravaned. And... My brother was 16, I was 14, and my brother had the coolest Camaro you have ever seen. It was an awesome car, and we were proud of it, man. We revved that engine, and we, we just loved that car. We're driving this Camaro in the caravan of cars up the mountain in the pouring rain on Friday afternoon on our way to this camp. When all of a sudden, the car jerks and the engine makes a loud noise and smoke pops out of the hood, 
and the car just breaks right on the, high, on the road halfway up the mountain. The car breaks down, we pull over, the whole caravan pulls over on the side of the mountain and we get out, it is pouring, pouring rain. And we're trying to figure out what's wrong with the car. We can't figure it out. All we know is it's broken. We have to get it off the road. So we, it's my brother, myself, our friend, and the pastor. We're pushing this car, right? Now, it is pouring rain. We're absolutely, completely drenched. We keep slipping and falling. It is a horrific situation. And my brother, who's upset about his car, is using language that the pastor's not used to hearing. Okay, I mean, every word out of his mouth, and I'm just like, oh, man, dude, shut up, shut up, and we're, we're going, and it's just getting worse and worse. Finally, they just push the car off to the side. We have to leave it there. We'll come get it tomorrow. We have to get everybody from that car and all the stuff from that car into one of the other crowded cars, right? So they crowd me into the pastor's car, and I am stuck in the center of the back seat next to his wife and their eight-week-old baby as she nurses the baby as we drive up the hill. I am devastated. I'm like, oh, freaking out, man. And, and it was just all we could do to keep from just saying, hey, look, let's get this car fixed and get out of here. Because when God's about to do something amazing, a lot of times things get tougher before they get easier. What we didn't realize is that, that at that camp designed for kids who were already saved, where there was going to be no evangelistic message the whole weekend, where nobody's going to be sharing Christ with anybody, at that camp, separate from one another without each other's knowledge, my brother, myself, and my best friend all gave our lives to Christ. God was doing something great, but it got harder before it got better. Last week, we're in Genesis 31, and Jacob was standing, remember, at a crossroads? And he started walking towards God. Finally, finally, Jacob is waking up. Finally, Jacob is starting to recognize, you know, maybe God is for real. Maybe God should be trusted. And he's starting to take these steps toward God. But he hasn't yet submitted his life to God. See, the problem was never that Jacob didn't believe in God. He believed in God his whole life. That's what our evidence is. His dad had talked about God forever. He had heard about Abraham, all the visitations from God, all the miracles that God did. He had heard about Isaac and the sacrifice on the hillside and all of that stuff. He had heard about God his entire life. There's no evidence that he had any doubt whether God existed. And then when life started getting challenging for him, God started appearing to him, remember? And, and so now he's having these interactions with God. I think if you had asked Jacob at any point in the story up until now whether he believed in God, he would say, absolutely. He was even starting to realize that, he, that God had been watching over his, his life, that God had been intervening and protecting him from Laban and blessing his flocks and blessing his business and all of that. So he definitely believed in God. He definitely knew who God was. But to know about God is not the same thing as knowing God. We've been saying this over and over. And to believe that God exists is not the same as submitting to him. 
There's a lot of people who absolutely believe in God, but they don't know him. There's a lot of people who are thoroughly involved in the Christian religion. They're members of churches. They've been baptized. They go to Sunday school. They uh, put money in the offering plate. They volunteer to help at events. They, they They are part of the church as far as anyone could tell but they have never really submitted their hearts, never really submitted their lives to God. And so on the outside, you would be sure that they know Christ, but on the inside, they're living for themselves because they have never yet come under the lordship of Christ. And, And I'm afraid that too many of us preachers stand up here and we talk about the glorious free gift of the gospel and what the the gift of Christ is that he did on the cross for us. And we say, all you have to do is believe and you'll be saved. And one person's definition of believe is very different than another person's. And God's definition of believing in God is that we put ourselves under his authority. We submit our lives to him. We begin to walk with him. We become followers of Christ. This is the season of Jacob's life when all that is about to change. So far, he knows about God. He's even moving toward God. But there's no evidence yet that he knows God. And sometimes when God's drawing you, things get tougher before they get easier. Genesis 32. If you brought a Bible with you, open it up. Otherwise, you probably got it on your phone or your iPad or something. Um, It's great when you use your phone because you can actually text your friends and people think you're taking notes. So go ahead and do that. (laughs) Genesis 32, verse 1. Now, as Jacob went on his way, okay, remember, he just left Laban. They had that whole confrontation. Now he's headed home. As Jacob went on his way... The angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Let's just stop there for a second because it strikes me how matter of fact this is. So he had this confrontation with Laban and then they they had a meal and they prayed and then they went their separate ways and he got up and left and suddenly he ran into a bunch of angels. And it's just like, it's just an introductory material. He, he was heading on his way, and the angels of God met him. And Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he, he named the place Mahanaim, which means two camps. There's, there's obviously God's camp here. There's obviously Jacob's camp here. They're two different camps. And so he names the place Mahanaim, two camps. And he was encountering God, but he wasn't yet in his camp. But God's certainly doing his part to encourage Jacob and to get Jacob to trust him. But Jacob is terrified. Look at verse three. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau. Remember him? Esau's trying to kill this guy. The whole reason he's been gone for 20 years is because he stole his brother's blessing and his brother said, I'll kill him if it's the last thing I do. And so he took off with just the clothes on his back and headed far, far away for 20 years. Now God has told him to go back and the only thing he can think is, when I start to go back, once I cross a certain border, I'm in Esau's territory, he is gonna wipe me out. 
Okay? So he's terrified. Uh, then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Isn't that interesting uh, terminology that he's using? Now remember, he bought the birthright with a bowl of soup, okay, from his brother. And then he stole the blessing by pretending to be his brother. So he has the double inheritance. He has uh, the blessing of God that comes through Abraham. He has all of that. And he obtained it, shall we say, surreptitiously. That's a big word. He, he, he cheated his way into it. And he knows that his brother's mad. But he has the legal rights. His brother, according to the prophecy, will be his servant, right? But look how he talks to his brother. He sends the message and he says, to my Lord Esau, your servant Jacob. Um, and, I, and he says, I have all this stuff and I sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your side. He's presenting himself to him like a servant. And, and he's trying to butter him up, basically. He's kissing up to him. And he's letting him know, I love the fact that he says, oh, and by the way, I have all of this wealth and all of this livestock and I've done really well in the last 20 years. Why do you put that in your greeting, right? I'll tell you why. Because he wants to imply to his brother, he's going to imply something. He's going to imply, I am now filthy rich. I don't need that double inheritance thing. So once he tells him how rich he is, he thinks, well, maybe his brother will go, oh, maybe he doesn't need dad's money. Maybe this is going to be okay. So he, 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 greets, he sends someone to greet him, and he, he sends him as a servant, and he calls himself his servant, and he says, I have all of this riches now, so there should be nothing wrong between us. Verse 6, the messenger returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you with 400 men with him. <laughs> that is not a reunion, guys. He's coming with 400 armed men. These guys are an army. There's only one way to interpret that. There's gonna be a fight. When I meet Esau, there is evidently going to be a fight. Verse seven, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. He's scared. He panics. He just met with angels. He just met with angels. And before that, God appeared to him in a dream and reminded him of all the promises that come from Abraham, Abraham on down and told him, I will make you a great nation. I will multiply you like the sand of the seashore. I am going to bless the whole world through you. Don't worry, I've got you, you can go back. But he sees his brother and 400 men coming and he freaks out and he thinks somehow I've gotta handle this. 
Has he forgotten God's promise? God's been showing himself strong on Jacob's behalf through the whole story. And he just met with angels for crying out loud. But he's letting fear and doubt determine his behavior. He is doing what we've talked about so many times in this series, leaning on his own understanding, right? And the scripture tells us not to lean on our own understanding, but acknowledge God in all our ways. So he's afraid. Circumstances are daunting. It looks like he's in danger. And so he begins to lean on his own understanding, take matters into his own hands. Can anybody relate to that? I think this is a universal thing, guys. This is a temptation that we face over and over and over again. It's not like some of us don't know what the Bible says. We know that God says in his word to us, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. We know that. We know that the word of God says, and my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. We've heard that. We know the verse in Psalm 23 that is so famous. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, right? We know what the Bible says. We know about Daniel in the lion's den and how that whole thing worked out. We know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and how Jesus met them in the furnace. We know about David facing Goliath and walking away with Goliath's head in his hand. We know about Elijah facing Ahab and Jezebel and the 400 prophets of Baal and what happened to them. We know about Gideon's tiny army that God kept making smaller and smaller in order to destroy a great army. We know about the empty tomb of Jesus Christ and how God raises the dead. We know about how God delivered Peter from prison and just broke the gates open. We know about all the ways that God protected Paul again and again and again. Do I need to go on? We know this stuff. But when it gets scary, we suddenly retreat into, I better figure out how to take care of myself. We do just what he does. That's why he sent the gifts to Esau. In a a second, we're going to see him sending all of these gifts to Esau ahead of time so that he can butter him up. That's why he buttered him up with the flowery language in the first place. Typical Jacob, right? Take matters in your own hands, manipulate things. Yeah, But God's working in Jacob. God is beginning to change Jacob. God is drawing Jacob. And this is this big trial that comes where it's sort of like Jacob has said, okay, Lord, I'm interested. And then, bam, life gets difficult. And we're going to find out whether or not Jacob decides to keep pursuing God even through all of that. Watch what happens next. Verse 9. Jacob said, Oh, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, Oh, Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness. What was that? Oh, the wires came down. All right, good. That's a sign from God. It means you should listen. Okay. <laughs> as long as I'm being prophetic today. Um, Verse, uh, verse 10, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. 
Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he will come and attack me and the mothers with their children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. I don't think we've heard a prayer like that from Jacob since the day we met him. We have never seen Jacob humble himself before God like that. We've never seen him cry out and admit that he is unworthy, admit that he's afraid, admit that he can't handle it, admit that he doesn't know how to fix it, admit that God has been his source of supply this whole time and that he desperately needs God to come through on his promises. And he reminds God at the end of this prayer, remember what you told me. Is there anything wrong with talking to God like that? <laughs> Absolutely not. Take it, just leave a finger there in uh, Genesis and, and turn to the New Testament. Go to Philippians real quick. It's right after Ephesians all the way to the back of your Bible. Go to Philippians chapter 4. And, and just uh, a side note, if you just meditated on Philippians 4 for the next six months, it would transform your life. This is some of the greatest stuff you'll ever read. Philippians chapter 4 and, and uh, we're just going to look today at verse 6. Paul's writing, and, and you, you need to know this because in English we don't see this, but in Greek it's quite obvious. Uh, when Paul is writing here in Greek, it's a command. He's commanding us. Listen to what God is commanding us. Philippians 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Yep, that's right. He commanded us to get rid of our anxiety. Stop letting anxiety rule your life, he says to us. Now, if you've ever struggled with anxiety, you know that is easier said than done, amen? It's not easy to just go, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just be less anxious, right? It just makes you more anxious. How can a holy God who is good command us to stop being anxious when we never chose to be anxious in the first place, right? Anxiety feels like something that happens to you. It's something you're a victim of. It's not something you do, right? Wrong. A holy, just God commands us not to be anxious. No matter what the circumstances, no matter if there's an army of hundreds coming toward us to chop off our head right now, he says, do not be anxious for anything and then he goes on and says, but, you say, well, what am I supposed to do? But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And we'll just throw in verse seven for free. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You, you feel like you have to be overwhelmed with anxiety and you feel like you've got to let anxiety control you and rule your life. And he says to you that if you're in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power lives within you as a Christian, you don't have to be anxious. But what can you do instead? Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We know what prayer is. Prayer is talking to God. Simple as that. You could do it while you're on the treadmill at the gym. You could do it while you're driving on the 210 freeway. I often do it while driving on the 210 freeway. <laughs> you, you can do it at any time in any place. It doesn't have to be a big religious thing. Prayer is prayer. Just talk to God, right? 
But why does he use the word supplication? What is supplication? Supplication is a specific kind of prayer. And with supplication, it means begging. It means that we fall on our face and scream, that we cry out, that we beg God. So in your prayer, supplicate, he says, beg God. And then he throws in with thanksgiving. And guys, I could teach a six-week seminar on this, but for now, let me just say this. The reason he tells us to, instead of being anxious, be thankful is because while you're giving thanks, you are not being anxious. It's a practical step. So be thankful. I encourage people all the time, get a, get a, a tablet and just mark it, things I'm thankful for, and just start on the first page and just start writing. Thankful I'm alive. I'm thankful for my kids. I'm thankful I have a house. I'm, and just may, every day add to your list things you're thankful for and thank God for those things. He says, you don't have to be overwhelmed by fear. You don't have to be overwhelmed by anxiety. You don't have to be overwhelmed by this sense of foreboding that you have when there's danger around. You can supplicate. You can cry out to God. And guys, there are times when nothing short of supplication is appropriate. And what we see Jacob doing here in chapter 32 of Genesis is supplication. He is telling God how unworthy he is. He's admitting that he can't handle this situation. He is admitting to his fear and he is begging God to keep his promises. God wants us to humble ourselves and run to him when the going gets tough. He wants us to do that. Moses did it. David did it. Elijah did it. Nehemiah did it. Peter did it. The list goes on and on and on and on. He wants us to run to him when things are breaking down all around us. God loves it when we run to him for help and ask him to come through for us like he promises to do. And there are times when it's really hard to find help hope. It's really hard to believe that God's going to come through for you. And he loves it when we come to him in those times. I was thinking about this this week and I'm going, when did I ever experience that? And it didn't take me long to remember. A couple years ago, uh, some of you know, I had open heart surgery. And, you know, I remember waking up in the recovery room with a tube in my throat and going, you know what, somebody better get this tube out of my throat or I'm going to kill somebody. You know that feeling? And and, and, I, and then and back to sleep. And then it gets to be nighttime. I'm in a room now in the cardiac care unit. And, uh, you know, I'm heavily sedated. But I, that night of sleep was the longest six weeks of my life. I woke up about every two to five minutes. And the medicine would just make me go back to sleep. And then I would wake up again. And every time I woke up, I had to experience again afresh the fact that somebody, you know what it felt like? It felt like somebody had taken a power saw and sawed my breastbone open and pulled my ribs. Oh, wait, that's exactly what they did. That's how I felt. And, and now, if any of you ever have to have this surgery, it was probably just me. It's probably easy other times. I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you that first night, I, I, I just, yeah, I, I didn't know if I was going to be okay. I really didn't know if I could ever be okay again. I was just in a fog. And I was only awake for minutes at a time. But I'm telling you what I did during those minutes. 
I supplicated. I prayed. I begged God. I reminded him of his promises. I asked him to come through for me in ways that only he could come through. I realized that eventually I was probably going to heal up, but there was no doctor, no nurse, no medication who could take away the situation I was in in that moment. Only God could give me peace. Only God could guard my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And that's when you got to cry out to God. Jacob's prayer is amazing. It's a prayer of humility. It's a prayer of thankfulness. It's a prayer of desperation and honesty. And God loves that kind of prayer. If you somehow got the idea that prayer is all about saying flowery, religious-sounding words with a lot of these and thous because that impresses God, I just think people, I think heaven laughs at us when we pray like that. Just pray, just cry, just beg God because God will respond. But not always in the way you would expect. God will deliver you, but not always in a way you will immediately enjoy. But before we get to that, I want you to notice one other thing. Jacob didn't didn't just ask God to do his part. Jacob was willing to do his part. Look at verse 13. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking cows and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. If you're not great at math, that's 550 animals. He, he just, he sins with the group that goes ahead of him. Take these 550 animals and give them to Esau as a gift, okay? He delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on before me and put a space between droves. So they're in groups or droves and there's a space between them. And, and, and he's like, man, Esau is going to be blown away. One group's going to come. They're going to give him like 30 animals. And then an hour later, he's going to meet another group and they're going to give him 50 animals. And then he's going to meet another group. And pretty soon he's going to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of animals. He's going to be overwhelmed by what I'm, I'm giving him. Verse 17, he commanded the one in front saying, when my brother Esau meets you and asks you saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going and to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, these belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau. And behold, he's also behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the drove saying, After this manner, you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent the night in the camp. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Verse 24, then Jacob was left alone. Let's stop there. You look at this plan that he concocts and how he puts the whole thing together, 
And he's got this whole strategy and how he's going to soften his heart a little at a time. And he won't get to see Jacob until it's finally, you know, he's already had all these gifts and all these receptions and all these blessings. And he thinks maybe this is going to work. Now, I don't know how you look at this because we've been watching Jacob and we go, this guy's a manipulator. He's a deceiver. This guy, this is the way he behaves. But I saw this differently. I'm like, you know what this is? This is a good plan. This is an intelligent way to deal with the situation. Remember, he divided his group into two companies. That's a good idea. And remember, he, he sent his, his wives and his children across a, a river so that there will be harder to find and harder to get to. He's got to protect his family. That's a good thing to do. And he came up with a strategy and he gave a gift out of the blessings. How many animals did this guy have and take with him when he left if he could just give 550 of them away as a gift? God had blessed him immensely. See, this is not a lack of faith, especially when you remember that Jacob is just learning to trust God. This is a sign of cooperating with God. When somebody is sick, I hope you pray for healing and I hope you also take them to the doctor, right? When, when, when somebody needs a job, I hope you cry out to God, Lord, please give me a job. I heard about this job opening. I, I, but I also hope you put in your application and that you'd like prepare for the interview and that you do all the things that will help you to be ready to get hired, Right? You say, Lord, make me healthy, but you don't change your diet or your exercise or any of the things that made you unhealthy? Or you say, Lord, heal my marriage, but I don't want any of that counseling stuff. You see how we sometimes want to presume upon God's power in our lives without cooperating with God's plan for our lives. God expects us to cooperate. I think Jacob's growing up here. He's called out to God. He's taken practical steps, right? He sent the messengers ahead with gifts, divided into two companies, protected his family, did all that stuff. But listen, life is less about doing the right thing than it is about becoming the right person. Think about it. Life is less about doing the right thing, as important as that is, than it is about becoming the right person. You know why? Because the right person does the right thing. God wants to change us on the inside. He wants to reshape our hearts. He wants to reshape the way we think. He wants to change our attitudes because if he can change who we are, then through who we are, we will begin to do the things that are pleasing to God. So far, Jacob still has a ways to go on that one. But even that's about to change. Again, verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. We'll come back to that. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, what uh, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have uh, striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob 
asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh and the sinew of his hip. That's a weird story. (laughs) But let me ask you this. Have you ever had to wrestle with God? Ever find yourself wrestling with God? I have so many times. God's trying to do something in your life and you're like, you know, God, I don't don't think so. You, You resist, you hold off. And I'm so stubborn that sometimes it takes a really long time. Habits in my life that God wants to change and I'm having none of it. Or, you know, dreams that I have of of what I want to do with my life and then he reminds me it's not really your life anymore, Doug. It's my life and I have another plan for your life and I'm not so keen on all that. Jacob wrestled with God and it changed his life forever. Don't miss the dislocated hip. His hip is dislocated, and he walks with a limp for the rest of his life. It never gets better. He was was reminded every time he took a step, he was reminded of that day when he wrestled with God. Every time he took a step, he was reminded that God's blessing also included a reminder of how much he needs God. So he walked with a limp for his whole life. But he also got another reminder of that day. God changed his name. Remember his name is Jacob. It means supplanter or deceiver, which has been the story of his life, right? And and God changed his name that day to Israel, one who strives with God. If you didn't know, that's what the name Israel means, the nation of Israel, the nation that strives with God. I think um, that was more about getting rid of the old name than it was even giving him a new name. He was transformed this day. I don't know for sure, doesn't say exactly, but, but based on the evidence I see in scripture, I think this was the moment. If there was a moment in this process of Jacob being drawn to God and Jacob finally saying, you know what, I'm kind of interested until finally Jacob submitted to God, I think the moment was here. He, I, I, I don't understand it, guys. I don't know how this happened. I don't know if this was some sort of physical manifestation of God that looked like a man. That's kind of how it's described. I, I don't know. I don't know if this was some sort of weird metaphysical experience. It doesn't tell us. We don't know exactly how he wrestled with God, but I don't think it's so hard for us to know what wrestling with God is like. And he was changed that day. I think this is a point where he crossed over from knowing about God to actually submitting to God as Lord. I I call this God's submission hold. And and some of you are going to not get this illustration at all but others will appreciate this. If you've ever watched either, you know, Hulk Hogan wrestling, whatever they call that, the professional wrestling, 
Um, or if you watch MMA, there's something called a submission hold, right? If, if you could get the guy wrapped up in some kind of a way and his arm is twisted around his neck and his foot's in his mouth and he can't move, right? And you can hold him there and he can't get out of it. There comes a point where all he has to do is tap you like that and the fight's over, right? If, if you get him in that hold and you hold him long enough in that hold, all, all you have to do is tap, submit, and, and the fight's over. He'll let you go. See, most of us have always believed that that's what submitting is about. It's about admitting that you've lost. But when you submit to God, it's about admitting that God has won. Do you see the difference? And, and God calls us to submit to him. Jacob had stopped fighting with God somewhere in the middle of this wrestling match, and he had started holding on to him. In fact, God doesn't say to him, stop fighting me. He says, let go of me. He's, he's clinging to him. He's, he won't let go. He said, God, I need your blessing so bad. I'm clinging to you. Bless me, God. Please bless me. I'm clinging to you. I'm clinging to you. Guys, clinging to God is a great idea. It's in that situation where we find the blessing. Because here's the thing. Sooner or later... Every knee will bow, sooner or later. You will bow to God. There are no exceptions. Every one of us, sooner or later, will bow to God, and you get to choose how you bow to God. You can either bow to him as a grateful child. You can fall on your face before him and say, my Lord and my God, and you could follow him and serve him and submit to him and let him be your king. But if you don't, if you want to take the, the, the path of a strong-willed child, you can wrestle with God all you want, but I'm going to tell you something. Eventually, you're going to submit, and when you do, you're going to walk with a limp. You're going to remember but you could be a strong-willed child. You can hold out. You could say, it's enough for me to know about God, but these areas in my life that God seems to want to be the Lord of, and God wants to tell me what to do with my money, and God wants to tell me what to do with my sexuality, and God wants to tell me what I could spend my time doing. Listen, God can, God, I'll, I'll do that when I get to heaven. For now, I'm just gonna believe in God. You can take that approach, but sooner or later, your knee's gonna bow. And if you take the strong-willed approach, you're going to walk with the limp. There's a third way that you might bow. You might bow as a defeated foe. Because last time I checked, death has a 100% track record. One day, there won't be anything left in you to fight with. And one day, you find yourself before a holy God. And you won't pop off and you won't stand up, and you won't puff out your chest. In the presence of holiness, you will fall on your face. Every knee will bow. And I can tell you, just like everyone else, you're gonna bow before the king one way or another. But if you wait till the end, it's too late to submit to him as Lord. And that's the most hopeless situation anybody could ever face. So. 
if you have yet to bow to Jesus as Lord, I know you believe in him, you know about him, you've heard the stories, but honestly, you're not letting him be Lord of your life. If you've yet to do that, I implore you, do it today. Because every moment you wait to submit to God is a moment in which you miss out on the abundant life that Jesus died to give you and you keep struggling with your way. It wasn't going so well for Jacob. The guy struggled his whole life. He comes to the end of his life. We'll see this in a few more chapters. He comes to the end of his life and when they ask him, so how was your life? He says, my days were too short and evil. That's how he describes his own life. This guy's over 100 now. He's been living this way his whole life. Finally, he walks with a limp because finally he submitted to God. You weren't born to be a Jacob. You were born to be a child of the king. The sooner you get there, the better, but the only path is the path of submission. And so I ask you today, as simple as the gospel makes it, that we would believe that he is God, we would admit our sin, confess it to him, agree with him about our sin, that we would accept the offering of his blood as a sacrifice on our behalf, and that we would submit our lives to his authority as God. And he says, I will give you life eternal and life abundant, and you will know life. And some of us are struggling and struggling and struggling and holding on to our right to do it our way. And I just say to you today, if that's you, stop it. Let go. It's time to tap out. What kind of life could possibly be better than a life of cooperation with God? Let's stand. We'll pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your patience with Jacob because we know we need that same patience in our lives. We thank you for this illustration of him wrestling with you because we know that too often we've wrestled with you ourselves. And Father, I pray for every one of us here, those who have been following you for some time, those who have been strong-willed and still holding on to areas of our lives that we don't want to give you, those of us who are just still trying to figure out this whole religion thing and see if it's even true, I pray for every one of us here today, God, that you would help us to submit, that we would stop insisting on our own way, that we would live trusting you, cooperating with you, and experiencing the abundant life that only you offer. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If, if you need to talk to somebody or you...